one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Thanks very much for taking the time to listen to Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast after a weekend that saw Chelsea win their first trophy in Joe's Mourinho's second shift and Liverpool uh, dominate a Man City team who look a bit like Tiger Woods looks at a golf course these days whenever he actually makes it out there. A bit listless, lethargic, not exactly embracing the pressure of having to live up to their own reputations. Owen oh, ever here with Ken Early. Hello, Owen. How are you? I'm good. I'm Kieran Murphy. Hey, ho. I quite enjoy... I quite, hey ho! Yeah, yeah, okay. that's what I went for there. I quite enjoy Man City's um, Sunday Premier League games, Ken. When yeah. I see they're playing on a Sunday, and I can watch Gary Neville scold them for ninety minutes like errant school kids. <laughs> Just he rips into them from the opening minute to the end, unless they're dominating games. They, they probably deserve it. There are a lot of underperforming, talented players out there, but he questions their professionalism. The, calls him an embarrassment if I'd be embarrassed I'd be embarrassed how easy, easy, easy does all these kind of things he really uh, I, I enjoy that almost as much as uh, the, the action I must say Cargo is the same um, he said uh, it's, a, it's an embarrassing it's embarrassing for the coach you know Pellegrini to, to play four four two like this in two matches in a row and lose both um, is just embarrassing um, embarrassing is a strong word to it use. It really is. Given how a lot of pundits beat around the bush on various items they really seem to have it in for City I mean, Pellegrini isn't really into the whole Mourinho approach of going on and saying, look, uh, we see how the uh, TV is dominated by, you know, Carragher, Liverpool, Neville, Manchester United, you know, and going through them all. Where are the Sky Blues? Where are the Manchester City Blues? Where is Dennis Stewart? Um, No sign of Dennis Stewart. I mean... Paul Walsh, I've seen him there once. Georgie King Cladley? They What's did the sometimes have. Um, who is it they have? Well, they're on? not Niall Quinn is a former Manchester City player, and uh, he's a stalwart. Mike Summerby. Do they have Mike Summerby on sometimes? Uh, and he he is actually quite uh, passionately pro City. Passionately pro City, but it's almost as though he's like uh, the loony fringe. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't get him in uh, because his views are. He's like a Pat, almost a Pat Crerand like figure hmm. uh, in terms of uh, oh it's that City. ludicrous is it no no certainly no not idea. I'm just I'm just sort of groping for a a, a, a comparison, comparison that point. I can really understand yeah but um, Paddy Crown we can all we can all row in we, we get what Paddy Crown represents as a, a football man they don't I mean complete bias no, nobody's standing up for Manchester City but you know who could who could stand up for them who could stand <laughs> over what they did uh, and I, I think it's the, it's the way they won the league last year that uh, people will always say you win the games you're expected to win you'll be close to winning the league and sometimes you're the the importance of the games up against your direct title rivals can be overstated City you know United did it a couple of times lost all of the big games uh, won all of the other games and won the league mm. um, but 
I don't think there's any for all the the talk that the league position doesn't lie. If you're the best team over 38 games, you're the best team in the country. You, sometimes you look for the defining game, the defining performance. Mm. So you can point the finger at that performance and say that was when they put the mark, marker down. We thought the we were the best. Man City didn't really do that last year. Uh, lost, you know, so many games last year to their direct rivals. Uh, that I think that there is the that, that's where the Neville Carragher doubts over City come from. But no, no, they don't. They don't seem to be as angry. You know, they seem angry watching Man City, but they don't seem when Manchester United were in the doldrums last year. They didn't seem to be the same sense of. You, this think, is you thought Gary Neville was going a bit easier on Manchester United than on yeah. Manchester City. Well, maybe I'm just being naive here again. Now who's being naive? Look, uh, you know, it's not it's not necessarily just a question of him having been a Manchester United player as the fact that, you know, to criticise Manchester United is inevitably to criticise... What are you criticising? You know, they've lost, they haven't scored enough goals. Who are you criticising then? Or they've let in too many goals. Who's, in that case, who's in your crosshairs? In we either really case... Three of your English that are... Yeah, I think in either case, we're looking at England players in the in the firing line. Whereas at Manchester City, well, thankfully, Joe Hart, I mean, what could he have done? <laughs> what, what could he have done with either of those strikes? Even Pellegrini saying, beautiful strikes, Joe Hart had no chance. That is true. So, you know... Um, it's more about the about how many England players are in the major teams than club allegiances. Manchester City, remember, are by far the best paid bunch of footballers in, in the Premier League. I think that's what it is. I think genuinely players like Neville and Carragher do get annoyed by that. I think so. They're looking at it going, oh, you're getting paid a lot more than we did when we played. Yeah. Uh, we put a, a lot more commitment in and therefore, well, certainly in Neville's case, therefore won more trophies. Yeah, there's none of this, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the argument that you sometimes get in GA, you know, for Christ's sake. The lad is, you know, he's doing his best. He's he's holding down a job working 60 hours a week. You know what I mean? He comes out, he doesn't have... Win, draw or lose, he'll still be teaching your kids in the morning. Exactly. You <laughs> say you don't really get that with, when it's when it's Eddie Akeem Mangala, right? He's not, he's not going to be teaching your kids. You know what I mean? He's just, he's going to be making a massive amount of money. Maybe he's not even going into work. You know, maybe he's got the day off, but he's still getting paid more in, a, in, a, in that day than this poor JA footballer who is... Actually, teaching, teaching kids black and blue, black and blue from getting beaten up and down the field, and he's there teaching kids. He can barely raise his. He's got. He can barely raise the chalk <laughs> to the blackboard, but he's still there plugging away, rain or shine. Now, in that in that instance, the criticism is going to be more muted. Yeah. Now it's a case of well, look, it was a bad performance, but at the end of the day, you let's give the guy a break. Whereas with you know Mangala. The, the flip side of being immensely uh, wealthy football players that you just don't really uh, get that. Uh, I haven't seen Peter Canavan or James O'Connor on Sky ripping into any mm. of the teams in the way that, uh, that that Gary Neville has been doing to Man City. We'll talk about Liverpool's resurgence with Tony Barrett on today's podcast. And we're going to talk Qatar 2022. The furore over the timing of the tournament has died down a bit over the last few days, but there's, I think there are bigger questions to answer. We're going to ask James Montague about some of those questions today. James has spent a lot of time working in the, in the country in the course of writing his book about football in the Middle East when Friday comes. It's time now for Ken Erdies. Report on sport. Sensational Euro 2016 qualification news. What? Um, the Gibraltarian Guardiola, Alan Mula, has been sacked. What? Mm, the manager of Gibraltar uh, is no more. A cryptic statement from the Gibraltar face says that well, actually... Well, he is. He's still... Well, he's still... I mean, he is, I assume he's still around. He is no more in his role. Uh, he is no more the manager of... Gibraltar, uh, but you know, still very much uh, a football man, and I guess probably available for work. What happened? Well, the Gibraltar FA say that they have conducted a thorough and careful investigation into internal matters and decided an immediate change was appropriate. It's not a decision that has been reached lightly or hastily. The Gibraltar FA is committed to safeguarding football on the rock and ensuring that the national team remains the pinnacle of Gibraltarian football. Consequently, the search for a new Gibraltar national team manager will begin immediately. <laughs> it sounds like he was attempting to set up a Gibraltarian Premier League, a breakaway Premier League. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued uh, by that stuff. It is. It's, it it's it, it begs more questions than it answers, really, doesn't it? Really it really does. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, Alan Bula uh, is known for 
the free-flowing style of attacking football that he advocates. Uh, I remember watching Ireland beating Gibraltar 7-0 and uh, frequently the Gibraltar back four was pushed up 10 yards inside Ireland's half. There are very, very few teams, national or otherwise, that will defend so (laughs) high up the field, especially when you can have Robbie Keane getting a 10-yard head start on your defence and not being offside simply by standing there on the halfway line. So uh, it was strange. Uh, but, uh, but after that game, he said, look, that's, that's the football I believe in. You know, I'm not going to come here and, and sort of cower in the penalty area. I'm not going to tell my men to, to, you know, huddle in the trenches and try and keep the goals out. Uh, I'm going to go chase the opposition in their own half. Uh, and that's what they did. But unfortunately, after a series of brutal pummelings, uh, no goals scored and 21 conceded in four games. <laughs> Beulah Ball is no more. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the... Beulah Ball, one of the, the uh, main tenements of Beulah Ball, right, yeah. of that philosophy in football, yeah. was that he not only had the bravery to play attacking formations against vastly superior opposition, he also... <laughs> w- in Beulah Ball... That's Beulah Ball. The key is that the coach cannot be afraid to haul their goalkeeper off. Most coaches these days don't do that. This is my standout memory from that game so he, against He partially substituted the goalkeeper after the yeah. goalkeeper had lashed one in. The goalkeeper, <laughs> the goalkeeper smashed one in off the bar inadvertently. <laughs> yeah. And then... Uh, Didn't he come off the bar, came back and hit him? Was no, no, he, he actually smashed it in off the bar. All right, okay. Like, it, it, was, it was ricocheting around for a bit and the goalkeeper somehow ended up orientated 180 degrees from what you would <laughs> what, you, what you would think <laughs> aimed a meaty boot at the ball and sent it crashing into his own goal. In a, I mean, it was unusual. It was a strange sound celebrating the goal at the Aviva Stadium. I've never heard it before. I've never been to an arena comedy gig at the arena at the Aviva Stadium. Maybe this is what it would sound like, but it was uh, the sound of uh, twenty thousand Ireland fans mm. uh, finding what they just seen quite amusing. How would Beulah Ball stand up to Warren Ball, Warren Gatland's mm. on the line, Welsh and? Not well, Owen. <laughs> I'm going to say not well. Uh, Warren Gatland has... It's a more pragmatic view that Warren Gatland takes on yeah. the world and how sport is played. Listen, than Alan Bula is one of the great idealists. You know? Um, the man is a dreamer. And I just hope that he can get past this. You know, he was, he was too big a character for the Gibraltarian... The, the, the cloak and dagger scene that is the Gibraltarian FA. You know, I mean... Real nest of vipers they got there. And uh, Alan Bueller, you know, he's, he's not a, he's not a politician. <laughs> to be honest. He, Bueller is not a politician. He is, a, I, would, I would say, um, like a, a kind of a craftsman uh, making uh, delicately embroidered Hermes uh, purses. Uh, and unfortunately, he's standing there knee-deep, uh, knee-deep in, in pig manure, right, <laughs> piggery. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, look, I'm a top craftsman, but I'm not sure that I have the appropriate conditions, the, the tools, the materials that I need to produce the kind of craftsmanship that I, I'd like to be associated with. So maybe this parting of the ways is for the best uh, all round. I mean, we, all, we should emphasize we, the, the statement is quite cryptic. We have no idea what's actually gone on there. <laughs> Hopefully nothing serious. The statement has done nothing to dampen... Uh, the curiosity around the... No. I mean, Alan Bueller, they've decided to go a different way. I'm probably not that interested in it, but the statement does. It hints at all. Well, I mean, it just when they when they mention an investigation, you know, into what's been going on, uh, it seems quite obvious what's been going on, but there may be pieces of information missing from the story that we don't have. So if we do hear any more on that, we'll let you know. That was, that was sensational Euro 2016. I suppose the anti-Alan Bueller is probably Jose Mourinho, uh, a man who... Uh, Wearing an expression of utter joylessness, talked yesterday about how happy he was to have completed a hat trick of League Cups. Everybody else is saying, "Oh, he, I suppose he has won three. Um, uh, he said, "Finals are, are not for playing; they're for winning," said Mourinho. But obviously, it's not just finals. It's almost like every game's a cup final for Jose Mourinho. Um, I don't really see him taking a different attitude from that in any match that Chelsea play. Um, he said, I'm like a kid winning the first one. It's hard for me to live without titles. I need to feed myself with them. Yeah. So he actually needs to... Without, without them, he, sort of, he starves, spiritually starves, and becomes weak. And it had been a while. People have been wondering if maybe he'd lost it. Hmm. You know? 
Um, but it seems as though he's back in the back in the winning trail, unlike certain other managers who he could mention, but uh, certain specialists in failure decided not to uh, decided not to mention. Um, so Chelsea, I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't a great game. Uh, deflected goal by John Terry. Deflected goal by Diego Costa. Iron defence. Tottenham. Not great. No, they're not going to get like a like a moth trying to get through a you know window pane. Just not going to happen for you, Tottenham. Uh, it's the worst feeling in the world, says Harry Kane, um, a young man who, thankfully, doesn't sound like he's been through too many hard times in life. Uh, he says, uh, but he, he he tells the Spurs fans that uh, they will use this as grist to their mill. They will be back and stronger for it because he didn't like the, having to watch Chelsea lift the cup. The cup lifted, of course, by John Terry. Um, Nemanja Matic, if you noticed, was all kitted out in his Chelsea gear, suspended though he was. John Terry's That's the house rules now. Even um, if you don't want him, the Matic is uh, people oh. embarrassing, John, to be honest. I don't really. Actually, you know what? Nemanja Matic was just about to start saying, No, wouldn't I look like a complete. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh. Oh yeah, okay, okay, John. I suppose I could do that. It's like when you know you're. you're I mean, I should do that. I mean, that's that's what people, players do. Players always do that, so I should do that. That's the right of course, thing to do. you're at the ba- captain. You're at the banquet with the um, you know, the the emperor or whatever, and he he spills his soup into his lap accidentally, and everybody pretty much then spills their soup into their lap. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, John Terry then uh, he 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 said first of all while he was still at the match that uh, no, he's not he's not going to come back play for England he did like playing at Wembley he loved it when the national anthem played that's what really got him going but he said it's never crossed my mind to play for England again I've drawn a line under it and the squad can move on so selfless John Terry uh, he went home and posted a picture on Instagram of his uh, two kids uh, kids are there lying in the bed asleep they've got the league cup on the bed between them and one of them the, the boy appears to be the younger of the two is wearing around his neck the medal which John oh. Terry has brought back from Wembley ah oh and you say well that's, that's cute it's cute I don't think it's cute I mean I really you know if a tabloid newspaper was to print photographs of John Terry's children they'd have to blur out the faces I mean I don't understand why somebody like John Terry uh wants to uh, effectively invade the privacy of his own children. Well, that's for John Terry to decide. Simply in order to show everyone that he's father of the year. Oh, look at this. No, I think I think you're look. taking a natural, the the natural bias, father of the year, John Terry home. bias that everybody has. No. <laughs> every right-minded person has. No, it just happens to be John Terry in this instance. Really? Re- yeah, okay. I mean, I, I think it's terrible. You know what? This is these are your kids. You know, you shouldn't be posting public photos of them. They're not old enough to say whether or not they want that photo out there. You shouldn't do that as a famous person like John Terry or people in general shouldn't do that? Well, I, th- I find it interesting. I mean, you, you get celebrities, you know, doing everything they can to try and guard the privacy of their families. And then somebody like John Terry, you know, he's not the only one. There's, there's tons of them. comes along and, and basically just throws the gates open, um, you know, of his own volition. It just seems idiotic. Well, that's for him. And the the point apparently being to show what a what a great father he is to provide, you know, such look at the toys I've Well the to difference give. the difference between uh John Terry posting photographs of his own kids and a paparazzo taking a photograph of John Terry's kids is John Terry has made the decision. So it's the issue is between John Terry and his kids as opposed to between, you know, the Daily Mail hmm. and John Terry's family. Yeah. I, so I, there there is obviously a di- and you know that there's a difference between those two scenarios. There is a difference in that he's the one who's decided to invade his own privacy. Yeah. Um, I do wonder, though, whether he's fully thought through. Well, Cristiano Ronaldo brings his kid everywhere, for example. Yeah. He constantly has him at these awards. And maybe it's just a way of controlling controlling that publicity. Uh, I suppose. Um I mean, I don't really understand why Ronaldo does that either. Maybe I've got old-fashioned views on... Maybe I... Maybe I, I mean, I'm not saying children should be seen and not heard. I'm saying they should be not seen and not heard. Not heard. They have to live out their <laughs> well, I mean, childhood on, in privacy. If you go on Facebook, you know, even in a... Yeah, I know. Region. I know that. I, I, know I, I, I know that. That really... What? Really annoys me. That's why I'm... I mean, I don't go on Facebook. It annoys you, friends and family and people... Facebook friends putting up photographs of their kids? Their yes. Kids. Yeah. That annoys you. <laughs> it really does. 
Well, what's the point of Facebook, so? My uh, my brother has three kids. They've no photograph of them has ever been on Facebook, and I have to say I I would agree with that. But I, I approve would, his policy. Well, I approve of his policy, but I would also say that remember uh, that they're human beings. They're not actually your toys. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> they're, well, they're not we, actually your toys. You know, so you've got, got a, a contender. Picture. Look, I got a new phone. Everyone, you know, it's not. It's it's a different thing. It's We've a got a contender for, for Father of the Year here, Simon Hicks. Simon, do you put photos of? Young Sam, I should, Every can day. I name Simon? I shouldn't even name Simon's no. uh, the name coming Simon's kid on air here because Ken will feel that I'm invading the privacy there. I don't, I don't have. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I think it's 100 percent your choice, uh, and I think it is. It's certainly different. You putting a photograph of your of your kid up on Facebook and John Terry putting it up on Instagram. It is definitely David Beckham. There was had, a, I think Wayne Rooney had one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, tiring them out before uh, you know, tiring them out before bed, and he's there with the two kids. You know. Um, in the swimming pool, I'm like, what's the point of this? Oh, so is it because he's got a swimming pool in his house? Is that the is that what we're is that the message here? I, d- I don't think uh, they're thinking about it. On the, on what about level. storytelling? For example, David Beckham had a nice story about one of his kids on the, the Graham Norton show the other night. Yeah, he, David Beckham's three kids are in the Arsenal Academy. Three sons. Yes, yeah, three sons are all in the Arsenal Academy. Um, Which I it seems as though, I don't be cynical about that. <laughs> well, on. I'm sure they're all brilliant players. Well, they must be. Although uh, you know there is that whole <laughs> the three of them are absolutely useless, and they're they're just uh, they're, well. There is the legacy yeah. effect, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, even Darren Ferguson played a few games for Manchester United back in the day. You know what I mean, it does. I mean, look, it exists in Beckham all. Beckham had a nice story. There's, there's no. Can I tell you about the Beckham story? Yeah. Beckham told a story about his son Romeo. I think mm-hmm. it's a middle child. Beckham turns up to watch. Romeo play. I don't know if this was for the Arsenal Academy or for another team, but anyway, the referee didn't turn up. So obviously all the parents just looked at Beckham and said, well, you know you, you know the rules of football. Off mm. you go. Beckham reluctantly decided to referee the game. His son's team were 4-0 ahead. No problems there. Everyone happy as Larry. Mm-hmm. He had explained, he prefaced this by saying that Romeo is the most emotional of his children and uh, probably the most emotional person in the family, he said. So okay. he, would, he would tend to take things to heart. The striker of the other team is marching towards the goal. Romeo comes in, cleans him out with a tackle in, in the penalty box. And Beckham's there. Oh, no. I have to give a penalty against my own kid here. So he looks at his own, the parents of his players, of his team, of the players on his team. And they're all, eh, don't really know. Can't really help you out here. He looks at the parents, of the players on the other team, and they're all menacingly looking at Beckham yeah. to, to say, you better give us a penalty here, mate. Yeah. So he gives a penalty. Penalty is missed, thankfully, but Romeo was on the verge of tears. He orders a retake. No, he doesn't order a retake. He allows the ball to... <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> Sorry, Romeo, you've encroached there. Anyway, <laughs> ro- the ball goes up the other end of the field. His son runs by him, looks at him and goes, I can't believe you did that to me, Dad. Yeah, well, you know, you've obviously got still a few things, a thing or two to learn about the world, son. But is it okay for Beckham to tell stories about his kids, heartwarming stories, or is he invading their privacy? No, I, th- I, think, I think that's okay. I think it's all right. I mean, that story isn't going to lead to Romeo being recognised in the street, admittedly the millions of photographs of him that already exist uh, in the media. Uh, maybe. I mean, it, just on the subject of whether his kids might be great football players, it's, you know, it would be no surprise. I mean, you are more likely to be a professional footballer if your father was one. But it, I, think I mean, it's it true. Is, it is... Quite odd to have all of your kids be absolutely amazing at football to the level that they're actually playing for us. It's a family business, you know. Um, who knows whether they'll all end up? In, I mean, uh, you know, there's lots of families where where the, uh, the kids all follow the lead of the parents and become usually sort of professions which are uh, uh, less specialists. Yeah, I mean, lots of different types of people can become lawyers. I mean, they talk about rugby being a game for all shapes and sizes. Well, that's even more so true of law. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, no, may, maybe they're all good players. We, we'll wait and see. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, wouldn't it be great to see in 15 years the on. whole Beckham litter with maybe him as the manager, England, World Cup 2022, mm. Qatar? <laughs> Too soon? I'm not sure. Cruz? What probably, you see? probably 2026 is a 2026. more likely. I, w- I would have thought. Maybe. Um, so... Look, that's great. So, so Chelsea win the first. Parents uh, out there, trophy. stop posting photos of your kids. On stop Facebook. and that's remember that your children are people. To stop using them to try and glorify your own parenting. <laughs> um, and where are we? Oh, I saw Robbie Savage last night. Uh, my favorite point. Making my Olivier Giroud point. Oh, wisdom his, comes dripping slowly. Yeah. I thought, well, wow, this is essentially listeners to this podcast can hear from me what Robbie Savage says. A week or two early, <laughs> you you can get the same level of insight 
uh, but sometimes a few days before, uh, <laughs> as, as Robbie Savage will offer you. Although he do, he did it in fairness in a more punchy way, he you know it took a couple of minutes and he had footage as well. Well, we don't what, have the rights. What, what was your Olivier Giroud point? Just his near post uh, wizardry at that zone. He's a matador, and uh, notably at the other the other day, he's a bit far, bit further out from the near post than he likes to be, but he is still in that near post zone, and he scores with his spade foot uh, a strike. Sweet as a nut, I'm sure you'll agree on. And did you see the particular goal? I'm uh, talking no, about? I didn't. I didn't see the Arsenal game. Yeah, I mean, some would say maybe it didn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily right over the sweet spot. But was it in the corner? Yeah. It's like was. an actual, like a mirror image of a usual, but an act in the mirror a, a viewing of uh, Olivier Giroud goal. I scored his right rather than his left. Yeah. Um, and he put he stuck it away. Fair play to him. Arsenal beat... Uh, Arsenal beat Everton so they're on course to qualify again for the Champions League the competition that has brought them so much happiness uh, and fulfilment over the last uh, two decades Um, the notable thing about this game from Arsenal's point of view is obviously the fact that uh, Per Mertesacker was dumped out uh, and in place of him came in Gabriel the player they signed in January did quite well and um, I mean if the experience of Chesney is anything to go by uh, Ospina again was in goal. It's not as though Ospina has been 100% convincing, but it seems as though Arsene Wenger has kind of made up his mind. Ospina's, it looks as though Ospina is either going to have to throw in a, a lot of goals in one game or get injured before Chesney gets back in there. So maybe the same is going to go for Mertesacker. Maybe he thinks Mertesacker just needs a rest. I'm not sure. We talked about Man City, but uh, let's give Liverpool their dues now. Well, as a, a rest, I mean, who needs rest? Because Liverpool just arrived back buzzing from... The flight back from Istanbul, um, a matter of hours later, took the field against Manchester City and uh, and really played a fantastic game of football. I mean, you know, they uh, the score is only 2-1, but they were manifestly the better team in this game. You know, it was supposed to be... There was a lot of pressure on them, I think, given the, given the fact if they'd lost this game, they're five points, I think, behind Manchester United. Um, five points is... Suddenly, two points is a lot different from five when there's 11 games still to go. And especially when it's one of your toughest games, you know, looking at your run-in, that's when you're t- and you've actually won it. That's a kind of a big statement about what you're capable of. Um, Rogers afterwards, I've got to take my hat off to the players. Uh, we got back at half four in the early hours. Um, you know, he's, he's essentially saying, to, to come out and play like that, like how they have today, just relentless they were. To restrict them to one shot and target, and that's a top team. They were incredible. They deserve all the praise that they get after that performance and the results. So he was almost like, "Wow, stunned by." I them. can't believe how you know, you know. I knew they were good, but I didn't know they were that good. You know what I mean? So absolutely um, riding the wave at the moment. Uh, Brendan Rodgers. He even had time that on BBC they they um, because it had happened on their program. This Noel Gallagher thing. Um. They said, oh, you've, you would have heard that Noel Gallagher gave you a nickname. And Rogers uh, smiled dazzlingly and said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I heard about it. Uh, well, I didn't see it myself. I was, the staff told me about it. And, you know, he's a wonderful artist. Uh, you know, he's a great... And it was, it was like... It, it was Couldn't a bit like, speak highly enough of a waste of his first three albums. Literally. <laughs> it was like uh, Beck... You know, talking about Kanye West's, uh, you know, he's he's just an amazing artist. You know, I just can't, you know, I'm just glad even that he's talking about me sort of thing. But he said, yeah, maybe he wouldn't be so happy today, you know, with us beating his team and all. But oh, it made me smile. You know, so so an absolute, uh, an absolute natural, really, in the in the world of uh, celebrity uh, back chat. The Liverpool players obviously followed Sepp Blatter's advice for how to how to settle into flights. You remember this from the city? I think you referenced oh, yeah. it actually last week, but uh, I go back to the December 2013. And he says, during flights, in particular long haul ones, I don't work, no documents, no interviews. I'm very determined about that. To travel is to recover as far as I do read, uh, that relaxes me, the newspaper or a crime novel. On trips, I want to forget about everything. Relax, recharge the batteries. He says essentially, don't work, don't eat, don't eat their food, whatever you do. Don't eat their food. I mean, eat, eat Br- obviously, stuff yourself in the airline lounge, Yeah, but don't eat, uh, don't eat once you're on board the plane. Don't eat, don't work, do sleep. 
Those are the do's and don'ts. I mean, apparently they, they don't sleep on the on the plane. According to Roger, she said, you know, the adrenaline is too high after a game like that. You know, everyone is just oh. really because saying basketball uh, is a big one in America, baseball as well. These grinding sports where you're playing and traveling constantly. Mm. All they do is sleep on these flights. They sleep on flights. They sleep... Well, not everybody, obviously, but there's a lot of players in recent years have said, oh, all I do is nap. Yeah. <laughs> I spend as much time as I can napping. It would seem to be the, the best thing to do. Although, you know, if they have... If they have been through a, I mean, it's not maybe the, the more used to it you get, the easier you find it to uh, to sleep. But just uh, on the subject of what actually happened, the oh, yeah. performance from Philippe Coutinho was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, he's just brilliant. Um, he was obviously one of the players who didn't have to go to uh, Turkey. But I suddenly, I mean, we were, we were kind of denigrating his shooting prowess earlier in the season. You know, he just can't really ever seem to catch a ball right. And suddenly he scored two incredible goals in, in one week. Um, I was reminded actually of the way in which uh, I mean sometimes this players suddenly seem to get the hang of it mm. you know I, well, I mean it's a, there's obviously a big mental component I mean I'm sure he's been trying to improve this and this is one of the things that he's working on you know in a technical sense uh, week after week after week but the kind of idea that you know, the sort of op- he, he would not have tried shots like that before the last little before the last of the I don't think he, he tries his shot yesterday unless he scores the one the week before. And you're reminded of how players can suddenly... Do, I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo now, if you look at his goal-scoring record, is, is, is unbelievable. He's more than a goal-a-game type player. It's, it can be difficult to remember that when he arrived at Manchester United, he, he scarcely ever scored. I think his first goal in the Champions League, a competition in which he's now the all-time top scorer, or rather just behind Messi... Um, he, you know, he didn't score for his first twenty odd games. Was it against Roma uh, when when Manchester United beat them seven one that he managed to score his first goal? And it's sort of it's it was like something that almost switched in his head. You know, it was kind of he he would typically dribble up to the edge of the box and blaze a shot two feet wide of the post, and this would happen again and again and again. So he got to the point, of, you know, is he wearing <laughs> what's wrong with his feet? But eventually, it somehow kind of clicked into place for him. He hasn't been able to stop scoring. I'm not suggesting for one minute that Coutinho... I don't think Coutinho is capable of doing what Ronaldo has done, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did start to, you know, to go from being a two-goal-a-season man to a ten-goal-a-season man from this point on. Yeah, Manchester United and Wayne Rooney, you wanted to mention them? Well, just Rooney um, now having to uh, defend Agnel Di Maria. Um, it's kind of... Manchester United, because they can't play, they can't quite get a good performance. Everybody, every match, it's always, oh, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with that? You know, um, even though again they, okay, they didn't win last week, but they have won again against Sunderland. I mean, the talking point evidently being this bizarre refereeing decision, which didn't make any sense. Um, I mean, John O'Shea fouls Falcao. Um, Wes Brown doesn't actually touch him. The referee thinks that Wes Brown has pushed him, uh, that Wes Brown has pushed over Falcao, but he hasn't. But the point is that surely you can see that John O'Shea has at least fouled him. Uh, that's 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 a penalty there. It doesn't matter what happens after that. Um, it was a really weird decision because if he gives the penalty for the original foul by O'Shea, then it's not going to be a red card. Wes Brown is right there. It's not like a, a last man type of foul. It's a, it's a penalty foul, maybe a booking, but it's not going to be a red card. But instead, he sends off the wrong player and gives a penalty. It was a really bad decision for Sunderland. I was kind of surprised at how chilled out Gus Boyd seemed to be better. Maybe he's doing some kind of mindfulness, I don't know, um, where he can accept these things. But, you know, Rooney's saying, oh, it's just one of those days every footballer has. This is about Dean Maria, because people are saying, well, what's the story with this guy? Why is he... He hasn't played well for about three months. Um... He's a great player. He's shown that you don't lose your talent overnight. Hopefully he will get back to his best. I think he will figure it out. We all have to do that sometimes. There's nothing worse than when everyone keeps going on at you. Says Rudy. <laughs> Who hasn't fairness, had, had that happen a few times in his career? You have to come to it in your own way. I'm sure he will be a big player for us uh, between now. Um, but the other thing is that Rudy's playing up front in this game. Uh, and he just say, I was obviously pleased that the manager played me up front. Uh, and I was delighted to get the two goals. But victory was the main thing today. The main thing is always victory for the team. Uh, but he was obviously pleased. That's, that's uh, up front. the end of Kennedy's report on sport. The, the odds weren't in his favour. I just turned to him and said, you tell me he's going to die. But the, the, the vet gave me a little 15 minutes spell. He said, listen, I'll be into you again in 15 minutes. I'll leave you too. And I just turned to him and said, are you basically telling me here I should say goodbye? 
I was in pieces on the night it happened, and after that, I thought, you know, just, I'm really dealing with this well. Like, I'm, 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 I'm a fine man. The odds weren't in his favor. A few weeks later, I happened to be sitting in my sitting room on my own watching telly, and I went to get up, and I just checked on the ground to see was Frank there, so I wouldn't stand on him, which because he would always sit next to where I was sitting. And then it just dawned on me, going, no, he's gone, and he's not coming back. Did you? Oh, Richie. Tony Barrett of the Times joins us to talk Liverpool City. Tony, Liverpool, unbelievably impressive. We were talking about, uh, a little earlier about the uh, different run-ins of this game for themselves and for City. Even Pellegrini himself actually made a play on this before the match and said, well, this clearly this is just the way it goes, but it should be an advantage to us. It didn't turn out that way. Maybe rest is overrated? It could, it could well be, to be fair. I, I, I looked at the, the team sheet yesterday when I got, when I got to Anfield and, and I could only see the game going one way, if I'm honest, and that was, that was Man City's. Uh, I looked at the team sheet, I looked at the, the Liverpool players who'd been away. Uh, I wasn't in Istanbul for the game, but um, I know plenty of people who were, and they were still suffering yesterday. Uh, the journey back was particularly horrendous. It was a two-and-a-half journey just to get to the airport by by a road and then a four-hour flight back and the, the, the team actually landed back on in Liverpool about half four twenty-five on Friday morning. Uh, and I mean, that obviously gives you 48 hours of, of preparation time, recovery and preparation time for, for what is a massive game. And City played two days early at home and although they've had the disappointments of losing to Barcelona, you'd expect them to have higher energy levels. So, for Liverpool to come through that test, I thought it was particularly significant. And I don't think people took into account the players they had missed neither. Uh, Sacco, who's, who's made a big difference of late, was missing. Uh, Lucas Leiva was was missing. Uh, the captain, Steven Gerrard, was missing. And so was Jordan Ivey, who's also made a difference. So Liverpool, Liverpool will take a lot from this, just simply because it's a game that a lot of people would have expected them to lose, given the circumstances it took place in. Tony, would you say maybe yesterday's uh, game was the moment at which this Liverpool team sort of moved on finally from the shadow of uh, Luis Suarez? That this is a team which psychologically uh, seems to have uh, have decided, okay, you know, we're we're still a team. We can still actually be a pretty good team, even though he's gone. I, th- I think that's the key word psychologically. I, I think that's the biggest difference in this Liverpool team. And, and to be fair, it, it was a weakness that they had last season, even with Suarez in the team. They, they, were, they were a team that played wonderful fluent football attacking football with, with Suarez in it. But they weren't a team that could defend. They weren't a team that could cope terribly well with, with teams who were more physical than they were. Uh, they had various weaknesses, balls tossed into the box, uh, as I say, the, the physical elements, all, all the kinds of nitty gritty things that you, you really need that that for example Chelsea had an abundance. Liverpool didn't seem to have that and, and earlier this season, if you go back to the Crystal Palace game where they lost three one it was those glaring weaknesses that, that were being shown up fairly regularly. At that point, I don't think anyone would have predicted that they'd have the kind of mental toughness uh, and physicality to come through the test that they're coming through at the moment. So I do think that is the biggest breakthrough. But, uh, for me, I, I mean, people would argue differently. I, I think the win over, over Manchester City yesterday is, is arguably, arguably the most significant of, of Dodgers reign because the circumstances came in and also in the style it came because they show qualities that a lot of people, I, I mean, yourself included, question whether they, they, they would ever show under Dodgers. So for me, they came through a really, really big test and yeah, it's starting to look like a proper team. Yeah, they showed qualities. They showed mental strength also. Uh, and maybe life after Stephen Gerrard won't be too bad after all. He's been out the last couple of games. Jordan Henderson seems to have stepped up. Uh, now, it depends on what way you read that Balotelli penalty incident uh, in the Europa League as to whether it was good captaincy from Jordan Henderson just to, to give up on that or whether he, he needed to be stronger and take over the situation. But it seems as though he's providing the kind of leadership on the field that Rodgers is looking for from him. I, I looked at the, the penalty incident really simply that if you score it's the right thing if you miss it's the wrong thing I, I, I can't get caught up in with the kind of dressing room dynamics of it that I understand why players would want it done a certain way and if it happens a different way that's not ideal but, but put, put the ball in the net and then argue about the rest later uh, I, I think it's the right thing that Balotelli took it uh, even if the circumstances again weren't ideal uh, on Henderson I, I would be I would think that his aim should be the next Liverpool captain but one uh, I don't think he is quite ready and you worry about the burden being placed and he's an improving player and he is an improving player he's, he's not the finished article yet and he is getting better and, and yesterday he scored the goal it was only third of the season and 
when he considered the, the positions he gets into, he should, he should score more than that. Uh, and there are uh, other days his, his game that he needs to improve, but circumstances might dictate that he has to be Liverpool captain before, before then. Uh, it may well be that he just, uh, he wants it, he, he does want it, there's no question about that. Uh, but he may, he may get a couple of years more than would be ideal for player or club. Uh, and if that's the case, I'm, I'm sure he'll, he'll take to it well because there's something about Jordan Henderson that people probably don't appreciate out, outside of the club, and, and it's, it's how highly regarded he, he is by teammates. It's and that that allows him to have no authority that maybe uh, maybe he's above where he's at as a player at the minute. Uh, the players absolutely adore him. He, he he's the one who makes the phone calls to them when when they have problems. He's doing it. He basically is taking on a lot of the role that Steven Gerrard's is occupied off the pitch for, for the last 10, 12 years just simply because he is a good lad. He's, as a footballer, I know a lot of footballers get bad publicity, but he's someone who uh, goes about his job the right way all the time. He trains well, prepares well, and, and he's a good teammate. And I think that more than anything will give him a chance of, of being a good captain. But I, I think it will be a process rather than an instant, an instant thing. If you were saying, Tony, that he shouldn't aim to be the next captain, but what? I mean, who who could possibly be the next captain if not him? Well, that's the problem. There, there is, there is no, there is no easy candidate. There's no one who jumps out from this group. I think what's happening with it within the group of players is that they are emerging as stronger characters together. There, there is no one who's, who's jumping out. Uh, I think Emre Khan has shown a lot of leadership qualities, but he's he's in the twenties. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give him Liverpool captaincy. Again, he's one who should be allowed to get on with his football. Lucas is someone who, who I think has got leadership skills and, and he's a very selfless player and, a player and I think that would help but there's no guarantee that he'll be in next year or that he'll play deadly enough to be captain. Martin Skater's a leader in, in, in the way that he plays and the way that he puts himself on the line but he doesn't speak terribly much so there's no outstanding candidate at, at Liverpool uh, and, and that, that is, is why Jordan Emerson is amazing is the, is the one who Again, I think everyone would accept that Brendan Rodgers said it last week. It doesn't necessarily follow that he's ready to be the pool captain and people have got to be careful with putting two days of bed on him, but it might just be that he's Johnny on the spot and it has to be him. Um, Rodgers, after the game, was... Uh, he, he, he almost seems incredibly grateful to the players for what they'd done, um, you know, the, the win that they managed to carry off. And what it did was it, it transformed what might have been a very... Uh, disappointing four days with going out of the Europa League into a kind of a triumph. Nobody remembers the Europa League now, uh, and Liverpool are very well placed in the Premier League. When you actually look at, at, at the fact that they're, they're out of the Europa League, is that being regarded uh, in the club as essentially a good thing? I mean, the Europa League now does at least mean Champions League qualification at the end of it. Everybody's aware of the, the fixture problem, but there is a big prize at the end of it. Are they, are they glad to have got that competition out of their hair? I think, I think privately there's a feeling that Liverpool, it's not that they could do without the Europa League, but just that it was going to be such a big task to try and win it with all the games involved and to try and challenge for the top four and try and win the FA Cup. I think Liverpool, if you look at their fixtures over the last, probably since the Crystal Palace game, have been lost. They've played 30 odd games in the last three, four months. Uh, and it, it has been a really hectic schedule, and, and that's taken its toll. Quite a few of the players have looked tired, and it. And they've probably got more injuries now than we've had at any other stage of the season. So I think all those factors combined meant that Liverpool they didn't want to go to the Europa League. And, and, and anyone who, who thinks that is kidding themselves, Liverpool wanted to try and win that competition if they could. Uh, Brennan Rodgers picked the strongest lineup he could for the, for the home game against Besiktas. Uh, and he picked a stronger team. Not, not, not his strongest team, but the strongest teams he felt he could with the injuries he had and with the, the fitness problems he had in the second leg. And he wanted to go through and the disappointed that they go out. But there's certainly positive spin-offs from that. And, and I looked at the players they made in fictionalist now. And it does look a lot less closer than it would have done had they gone through. And that is, that is the silver lining. But, but I'm one of those. I think if you go to Europe, that's a negative. Uh, and I think if you're Liverpool, you need to be competing for European trophies. But from their point of view, they... They, they've got priorities and their priorities to make sure that they do get into the Champions League next season and, and, and possibly going out to the Open League will help that process. Tony Barrett of the Times, great stuff. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, good speech to you. Uh, it doesn't sound like Tony's totally convinced about Jordan Henderson as captain. Feels no. that maybe yeah, he could do it a couple more years of, of development. Incubation. Incubation. He didn't go quite as far as Joey Barton did. I mean, Joey Barton suggested that. Henderson was pathetically aping 
uh, the style and mannerisms of Steven Gerrard in an attempt to sort of become captain by imitation, that it was sort of st- by, by assuming the role. You know the way if you, if you smile, you, f- you feel happier. Yeah. If you frown, like Steven Gerrard, you start to feel you know, more kind of grimmed out. And that maybe if uh, this is what Byron was suggesting, which I think didn't go down very well at uh, Liverpool. I mean, you know, I don't see reason why not. I, I, what I thought was interesting about what Tony said there was, oh, he wants it. Jordan Henderson, he really wants it. Why is it certainly so important you know, to be the captain? What's the big deal about that? Well, because it's available to him now because Gerard mm. is gone. He yeah. probably didn't want it. He probably didn't think about it up until now. Most players want it, particularly in England. Captaincy is still seen as a massive thing. Captaincy but, no, oh, well, I think it's more seen as a massive thing than it used to be. I think it's, I think it's honestly like become this uh, it was always a huge, obsession. It was always players. a huge deal. Do you think? Being captain of, of a club. Yeah, I mean, when Roy Keane was captain of United, mm. if he hadn't been captain, he wouldn't have had the same... The, his legacy would have been completely different, I think. Mm. Uh, now, you would, I, I agree with you. I actually think the captaincy is a little bit overrated, but it what has been rated highly for, mm. for years. Mm. Really, the England captaincy is a different thing again. It's... It's this weird thing where it's almost like a brand um, in and of its own right. But uh, it certainly seems... And even the, the... It's weird, the fact that Henderson... The actual criteria by which you pick who a captain should be maybe has changed. I don't know. Jordan Henderson there, it seems like his biggest impact around the squad is that he's a good lad who'll, who'll make the phone calls and make sure everyone's okay. Yeah. There are different ways of captaining, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if Roy Keane would have been... Well, Roy Keane would claim that he did make sure the lads were all right, but I don't know if it, it was quite in the Jordan Henderson mould. Well, maybe. I mean, I'm trying to think of another Hen- captain like that. I mean, Gary Neville, he was a bit like that. But oh, he was Kenny all- Cunningham. I mean, actually, Cunningham. I know I'm banging on about Keane too much on this podcast, but Keane, uh, in general, but Keane criticised Cunningham. Cunningham for organising too many social activities and for being too... And, and for being too unfailingly engaging to everybody who was around the squad. Which you know, was ludicrous. Like, so the staff, that, yeah. you know, Kenny was always there with a friendly word. <laughs> yeah. you the know, tea ladies, the, the, the keen aboard <laughs> this kind of approach for whatever reason. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. You can just get the impression he wanted to somehow say something, uh, you know, a little bit barbed about Kenny Cunningham. Wasn't quite sure what it would be. Just threw out a couple of, on the face of it, Quite good things that Kenny Cunningham did, and it was like, Pfft. but Cunningham strikes you as maybe the Jordan Henderson type that maybe, he, yeah. who does make himself very popular among among teammates. If you're looking for Ireland's win against uh, uh, to chat about Ireland's win against England in the Six Nations, if you want it to be poured over, have a listen to the latest podcast we put out. Jerry Thornley and Dennis Hickey were in studio for that. The reaction to FIFA's plans to switch the World Cup to November and December in 2022 was predictable enough. The Premier League leading the protests, protests that have fallen on deaf ears. But the bigger questions surround the awarding of the tournament to Qatar in the first place, really, Ken, I think, given the detailed stories of the corruption around their bid and especially the treatment of migrant workers in the country. We're going to talk about this. But maybe it's worth outlining just what the kafala system is in place there, this relationship between employers and employees. Yeah, I mean, the, the kafala system is... Uh is a system which isn't just confined to Qatar, but governs the um, governs how how okay. Essentially, Qatar is a small country with a small population and a gigantic amount of money. Where there is now a gigantic amount of construction happening. In order for that to happen, you need to import a lot of workers to do the job. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you govern that? Um, the system that they've been using in Qatar is one in which um, essentially the um, employee arrives almost as a kind of invited guest of the employer who has uh, who, who doesn't really have many independent legal rights. I mean, the employer can, for instance, confiscate their passport. I mean, if you're say if you're a migrant worker, you arrive in Qatar, you suddenly don't have any documents because you know, your employer has them. It's not a good situation. You're not be. really in a, in a in a very strong position to to bargain for anything. You know, if something you know, if you don't like the way things are happening, or even if you want to get out, you can't do that. Yeah, modern day slavery is what it's been like. Certainly, today. indentured servitude would seem to would not seem to be going too far to describe that. Well, we're joined by James Montague on this one. who spent time in the country writing for CNN, the New York Times, and working on his book when Friday comes: football war and revolution in the Middle East. James, we'll start with the issues around the dates for the tournament. There clearly wasn't much support late last week in the UK for this November December December World Cup in Qatar I, I get the impression you think it's not such a bad idea well, I don't think a Winter World Cup is necessarily a bad idea. What we have to do, first of all, is separate FIFA. I mean, it's very difficult to do that, but separate FIFA and Qatar from the idea of a, of a Winter World Cup. When you think about a Winter World Cup, what is winter? 
You know, we've already had six Winter World Cups in the Southern Hemisphere. The fact is that football is increasingly moving away in terms of uh, popularity and in terms of, you know, financial uh, means as well. Away from Western Europe, the future of football is definitely a much more global game, as it should be. We constantly talk about that. And the idea that it has to be wedded into a June, July or July, August or, or a summer, like a Western European summer, um, you know, I think it's a bit anachronistic. And I, I, can, I can see why moving it around to incorporate it to other parts of the world where football is equally as important as, as it is here, if not even more passionately supported. I don't see a problem in doing that. I certainly don't see a problem in having a World Cup at this time. So it means places that, you know, geographically can't have them can have them. I don't see any problem with that. There are lots of problems with it, James. Mm. Talking, I mean, the, the, the first and most obvious problem is that Qatar bid for this on the basis that it would be summer. Okay, let's, when we say summer and winter, it sort of rather depends which hemisphere we're in, what those words mean. So let's yeah. say they bid for a June-July World Cup, and it's now apparently going to be November-December. They, they lied about what they were going to do. They moved the goalposts after the event. Now, this is what I mean by separating what is Qatar and what is FIFA and what a Winter World Cup would be. So these are the arguments why Winter World Cup actually... You know, I don't think would be a terrible idea. Now, on the flip side of that, the other issue is that they didn't bid for this to be a Winter World Cup. And you can see, and it is very right, that the Australian Federation and also the American Federation will be very upset they lost the bid on this. The technical report for a Summer World Cup in Qatar was that it was the highest risk and that it shouldn't take place in the summer. Now, those are questions that are very valid. This isn't me coming on here saying, oh, you know, you know, Qatar does everything right, the West does everything wrong, or West does everything right, and Qatar does everything wrong. It's about the nuance of it, about the principle of a Winter World Cup. Would a Winter World Cup really be that difficult? Is a Winter World Cup desirable? Yes, it is. I think it would be. I think it would be a fantastic idea to have a Winter World Cup. Now, the process by which we've got to this has been shameful. I mean, we have had a corrupt... I mean allegedly corrupt system, but I mean, the amount of people that have uh, left the executive committee of FIFA who have made this vote under a cloud, under accusations, sometimes founded, sometimes not, is incredible. The entire system um, has proved that it wasn't fit for purpose, and that's partly down to the fact that football and, and the revenues that are involved in the World Cup now are absolutely so big that the money and the prestige of the tournament has kind of outgrown what is essentially a golf club house with a few kind of old doddering majors around still making decisions about, you know, billion dollar contracts where really they've been there for 30, 40 years and they don't have the capacity to deal with it. So this isn't an argument against root and branch reform of FIFA or the fact that, you know, the whole business of awarding it to 2018 and 2022 has been shady as hell. But the concept of a Winter World Cup, I don't have any problem with. But the bigger question is, why should the rest of the world be discommoded just so that a couple of super rich families in, Qataris, in Qatar get to host the, uh, the World Cup in, in their own backyard? Well, that's it, Ken, isn't it? It's not the rest of the world. It's just the English league that's really going to be taking the brunt. Well, it's all, it's all of the leagues in, in Europe, James. I mean, it's... it's, well, it's mainly, mainly the leagues in Europe, but all of them mainly have uh, European uh, winter breaks. Um, it won't be that much of a difficulty to move it. So we're not, this is what I'm trying to get. This, this, is a, this is a really Anglo-Saxon way of looking at it. The rest of the world do not view it as winter, or a lot of the Southern Hemisphere won't view it as winter. This is not something that is um, looked at as a major problem. Other people can move their schedules. This is a good time of the year for a lot of the world to have it. I can understand why the Premier League would say that, you know, well, we're, we're, we're bearing the brunt of it. Of course they are. But actually, the Premier League, I think, for its own good and for the good of the, for the English national team, I think it would be a good idea to have a winter break. So the, the idea that the rest of the world is somehow being put out of place because of a few rich Qataris is, not, is just not true. If you go out and, and speak to football people outside of Europe, there is just not the same kind of anger towards FIFA or Qatar or for this decision that there is mainly coming out, and let's be honest, out of London. If it was a decision, if this was the only concern, I would say, James, about the World Cup, if, it was, if everything else had been above board and the, yeah. and the only issue was at what point of the year, the calendar year, it was played, mm. maybe it wouldn't be such a big deal. But it just seems to me that it comes on top of so many other, in fact, much more serious, deep-rooted problems, in particular the, the ethical objections to the tournament being played in a country that, that treats its migrant workers in, in the way that Qatar has done. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I've been writing about the kafala system and the evils of that kafala system, which is essentially a form of indentured slavery. Since 2004, I lived out in the UAE 
Um, I've been to Qatar several times. There are, there are major, major problems with this system. And I was writing about it back when Daily Mail, when Martin Samuel, these people who are raging about it. And let's, let's be honest, the Daily Mail is not a newspaper that really worries about worker rights in general, but somehow has got very upset about this right. Um, they, they didn't want anything to, to do with that, to that, that issue then, right? What this World Cup, what this 2022, and this is an accidental byproduct of it, and this is why I want the World Cup to go ahead in Qatar in 2022. This is, for, let's say, for non-football reasons. And that is because it is the only way that uh, Qatar, and by extension the other Gulf countries, are going to be forced to reform. This, this is the biggest issue in the Gulf. This affects and ruins millions and millions and millions of people's lives. The World Cup and the, and the, and the microscope that it has brought on Qatar is forcing reform in a way that literally no other, no other policy, no other form of pressure could ever do. I mean, look at the UAE. I mean, I've lived in the UAE. The workers I've spoken to in these dreadful camps have said, even in Qatar, they've said, we might be in Qatar, but thank God we're not in the UAE. Thank God we're not in Saudi Arabia. And yet you've got a team from Abu Dhabi, or a team funded by the royal family of Abu Dhabi, Manchester City. Nobody's asking the questions about Kafala in that country. No one's asking questions about... Uh, reform to the system. The UAE is one of the least democratic countries on the planet. There is nothing, there is literally having a, a, a championship, a Premier League winning side being funded by that family has led to zero reform and zero pressure. Yet, in Qatar, they're taking it seriously because of the World Cup. So it's not, you know, this debate isn't about Qatar versus, I don't know, Qatar James, I mean, versus the rest of the I... world and you have to be on one side or the other. The point is, that this has been a this has been a mishandled and awfully run way of uh, choosing who should win it. I wasn't surprised when they did win win the bid because anyone who spent any time in the Middle East during those periods would have seen that this is definitely something that they've been been aiming for. But now that it's there, it looks like it's going to take place. To not take place would have basically bankrupted FIFA and would have bankrupted. A lo- you know, there have been so many legal cases that it probably would have ended the World Cup as we know it. Um, I can see why it's going to, I think it's going to take place in 2022 now. And if the byproduct of that is the end of an evil system of slavery, then do you know what? Then I'm all for it. But James, nobody seriously believes that it's going to be the end of an evil system of slavery. I don't see why it would be. I mean, in the first instance, FIFA has awarded the World Cup to Qatar with that system in place. It's effectively rewarded them. Uh, it's rewarded a society whose economy is based on indentured slavery. I can think of, a, of a, another country in the past that had... Um, uh, an internal uh, social system which was judged repulsive by much of the rest of the world, which is apartheid South Africa. Mm. And FIFA's response in that instance was not to give them the World Cup in the hope that maybe they'd smarten up their act, but to ban them outright from from all forms of football. It, it, it seems that things have, have changed remarkably. Now oh. now you reward uh, the slave state as opposed to punishing it. The main, the main reason that's changed is because South Africa really had no large strategic or economic... Um, say in the international system. What we're talking about with Gulf Arab states are countries and are systems that are extremely important because of the amount of gas and oil that they have. So it's, it's a completely different way of looking at it. Politically, look what's happening in Bahrain at the moment. I mean, there's absolutely no pressure. It's absolutely disgraceful. Politicians are not going to take the collective decisions needed to make those countries change their way. They should do, but they're not. But what's happened here is that under the radar, there's an opportunity to change the system. Now, you might say it's disingenuous. You can say, well, they're making all the, the wrong noises or they're making the right noises just to kind of placate us and no change will ever will, I mean, will th- ever th- these are the same people who told us that the World Cup would be held in, in magical air-conditioned stadiums. So they'll say anything uh, in order to, to get what they want. Look, there are, I can tell you that the reform movement for Kafala is a thousand miles down the road than it is in any other country in the Gulf. Now... We can say, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I don't want to get involved in kind of whataboutery. But the fact is that this is a genuine opportunity to change it. And it's come by accident. And they didn't see it coming. And FIFA certainly didn't see it coming. And God damn it, FIFA should not be taking credit for it, like uh, Jerome Valk did the other day, saying, well, World Cup could... No, I'm coming from this as somebody who's passionate about human rights, who's passionate about worker rights, who's gone out there to these Middle Eastern countries. I've, I've looked in the eyes of these workers in these terrible camps as they've cried and talked about suicide. And I can tell you, for them, for their lives, 
I hope the World Cup does take place in Qatar in 2022. And I hope that the, the international community carries on putting pressure on them via this World Cup, which is happening and the discussions are happening. That there, are, there are facts on the ground which are changing. Now, they might not be changing as quickly as a lot of people would like to see. But, you know, look at the UAE. That's the example. Look at Man City. Look where that money comes from. And where, where, where's the pressure on that? Where's that? This, this shows what can happen through very targeted pressure through events like the World Cup. I think that eventually this is going to be a kind of... The worst thing that could happen would be for the World Cup in 2022 to be taken away from Qatar. That would be the worst thing for worker rights in Qatar. Can you imagine what the situation would be on the ground? They'd effectively be, bad, they'd be, they'd be blamed. They'd be blamed for... Shaming the nation, their conditions would get worse. It would be appalling. What about gay rights, which is to say human rights, and the stance in Qatar on that? Is that likely to change because of the hosting of the World Cup? I think so. I mean, we've already talked about um, you know this long-standing um, bill of rights that they've they've talked about. You know, but they've realised there. Are, I've spoken to many people within the, within the bid, and there are genuine reforming characters there. But this is a very closed system. I mean, this is an autocratic monarchy, but you've also got to remember that Qatar, if we look at this politically rather than in a football, in a football way, um, you know, is far more reformist than any other Gulf country. You know, under the previous emir, he took the country much closer towards kind of Western standards of, I mean, and, and this is of a, a relative thing, which is nowhere near a democratic state, but they wanted to introduce, introduce a constitutional monarchy with an elected parliamentary chamber. Now, that has been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and they're talking about that taking place next year. They've, Al Jazeera, for all its problems, is still much freer uh, than any other uh, you know, outlet in the Middle East in terms of, kind of what they can report on and how they report on things. This is a reforming country. It doesn't sound like that when you pull out, oh, well, what about this? Homosexuality is, is, you know, is illegal there. Fine. But this country's existed for 40 years. You know, these countries in the Gulf have existed for 40 years, and the path towards reform that Qatar's on is far more advanced than any other country in the Gulf. And, you know, all the problems there are, I'd rather make the best of this terrible situation, uh, which is genuinely the end of the kafala system. And that's what I would campaign for, that there's an opportunity to get some way down that road. If it's taken away, I don't think that would happen. James, it's been fascinating talking to you. James Montague, author of When Friday Comes. Thanks so much for taking the time. No worries. Interesting, Ken, that James feels that taking the World Cup away now is actually the worst thing that can happen for migrant workers in the country. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Um, It's certainly, what he says may be true, but certainly... It doesn't. It doesn't make it right. It's not. It, it doesn't say much for the, no. Yeah. Uh, you know, then they, they'll be punished even further in an unjust way, having been punished. Now, I, I should. I do want to mention also that on Thursday we were talking about this. Uh, I mentioned having seen some figures uh, comparing deaths in construction uh, related to international sports events in recent years, and a graph which showed this huge number of deaths in Qatar compared to small, quite small numbers for, you know, Sochi, South Africa, Brazil, London Olympics, and all this kind of thing. And we did have correspondence, uh, someone got in touch with me who is out in Qatar, and I don't want to give their name because I haven't said, haven't said whether or not I can use their name. Um, but essentially they were making the point. I live here in Doha. Um, he's saying, um, you know, what stats are these? Uh, I don't know how there could have been a single death yet given that not one sod has turned. I live in Qatar and I'm against the tournament, but bogus stats really bugged me. Uh, these figures are for total deaths in Qatar by non-natural means for migrant workers. They include road traffic accidents. This country has one of the highest RTA rates in the world. Goes on to say that he works in the um, in the sector of where he lives, or where he works, um, on a daily basis. But he sees his road deaths, lots of them. Very few construction deaths. Uh, I cannot recall a direct construction-related death through my facility in the last two years. So that you know, this is a this is an important point as well. The fact that uh, you know there's. <laughs> You know, there may also be misinformation. I mean, he certainly this is somebody over in Qatar saying, "I don't believe, you know, I don't believe what I'm hearing here in terms of why wow, this this huge, uh, this um, vast number of deaths." Or maybe there's a certain amount of massaging of figures. Well, coming. yeah, but the Guardian, uh, fair enough. Where this person works, that's uh, he's he's got the info there. But it doesn't mean that the, a lot of the places we're talking about, a lot of the companies aren't necessarily as reputable. Obviously, as the companies that are involved where he is, and the Guardian went over and did hugely detailed work on this. And the Guardian did say a lot of them are, yeah, a lot of them are in, uh, you know, not necessarily directly due to an accident at the workplace, but a lot of them can be to do with um, conditions, health conditions uh, affected by 
work conditions, if yeah. you take my point there. So it might necessarily be a workplace accident, but it could be your living conditions and your and the pressure and the stresses of be having these uh, having your visa essentially taken away and the situation you're you're plunged into. So it's fair enough to say that you know we, yeah, it's I hard to get an accurate figure. If if I was peddling bogus figures in our broadcast on Thursday, <laughs> I apologize. do I do apologize. I mean, it's not great to peddle bogus figures, but maybe if I apologize. A last point, Ken, on Philippe Coutinho. You yes. wrote today that the it was quite interesting how I didn't hadn't realised that Suarez had praised him quite so highly in his book. He said when this guy came, th- that's what changed what was going on at the club. And mm. Suarez maybe been self deprecating there because clearly he was the the biggest um, uh, weapon in Brendan Rodgers' uh, arsenal there. But he was hugely impressed by by Coutinho. Mm, um, yeah, he, he seems to have been all right. Uh, he, he praises him more than any other player. I mean, he praises. Strange players, in a sense. I mean, Joe Allen seems to really seems to really rate him. People say, "Well, it's, it's one of those." Everyone tells me Joe Allen's rubbish. Well, I've got news for you: <laughs> Joe Allen actually isn't that bad. It, you know, it's maybe a bit more along those lines than what he says about uh, Coutinho. But yeah, he does. Uh, he, I mean, that's two years ago, and I think Coutinho's has he's done again. Yeah, hugely. I mean, he's he's. Um, He's never going to be the strongest player, but it's not. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, um, he was playing for, he was playing against Swansea, I think, took a heavy tackle, was gone, was out of the game, was gone actually for six weeks. You know, he, he sort of, I don't see that type of thing happening to him. That type of thing can strike at any time. What am I saying? It's, it's nonsense. But I think he's better able to stand up to the sort of treatment that, you routinely will get in Premier League matches, whereas at that point, you know, it was like, I can't believe, I can't believe I've just been assaulted like that. Now he knows it's going to happen to him, and I think he's better uh, equipped to deal with it. Our first programme already out today features the Six Nations, Ireland's win over England, and Ushin McConville and Anthony Moyles were in studio to talk about a wildly undisciplined weekend of Gaelic football. Mm. A lot of players seem to check their brains in at the dressing room, Irf. Uh, yeah, well, actually, if you were wondering why that was, Ken actually has provided the answer for that in our first podcast, which is uh, that they heard, listened all week to English journalists talking about how our Gaelic football background has created... It's the, the, the super... The, basically, our, our uh, superhero yeah. skill is uh, the Gaelic football background of our rugby players. So, having listened to that all week, they took out the frustrations of having to hold down a job and play an amateur sport instead of just being brilliant rugby players uh, on each other, uh, which was kind of, you know, it kind of defeated the purpose. I mean, you know, your, your fellow man here, I mean, we're all hurting. We've all realised that we've made a terrible mistake by not playing rugby. Mm. Um, so why, why, why not just strike out of the system? Not, don't strike out no. at your fellow man. Exactly. So. I mean, that's not bullet ball. Or if that just is not it's not ball. It's not bullet ball. It's not even gaddy ball. You can uh, have a listen on that show, all the usual channels. Do check out irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. Warren ball. It's Warren not ball. gaddy ball. It's Warren ball. Sorry. Email secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Murph. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.